Thank you. I am a member of Al-Anon. My name is Aaron Jackson. My home group is the One Purpose Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. We meet at 8 o'clock on Thursdays. We study a step every week. On the last Thursday of the month, we study a tradition. I absolutely love my home group. I hope you feel the same way about yours. If you're ever in the Charlotte area, please look me up. My wife and I are uh, in the phone book, and we'd love to take you to a meeting. We've got a lot of good good recovery in Charlotte, as I can see that you have here. I want to thank everybody who's welcomed me and made me feel so welcome here since since I got here, and, and, uh, and thank Carrie and the committee for inviting me to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Is this good, or should I point this up? Uh, all right. How's that? that better? Okay. I'm not going to start over. But I do want to look and see what time it is. I'm not going to go till 9.30. Okay. Um, anyway, I'm just really grateful to be here, and I want to thank everybody for, for welcoming me, and thanks, Scott, for picking me up at the airport, and I really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit, and uh, just really grateful to be here. Um, I'm going to start my story at the beginning. Um, you know, I always, I always like to start out by saying it's true that I meet our very simple uh, requirement for being a member of Al-Anon. My life has been affected by alcoholism in family members and in friends, but it is equally true that the defects of character that made my life so completely unmanageable, uh, the, the self-centered fear and the overblown sense of responsibility for everyone and everything and the resentment and the rage, I really don't remember a time that my life wasn't ruled by these things. So. I always want to start out by making it very clear that I needed a meeting long before I picked up my first drunk. I am here <laughs> because there's something wrong with me. Now, it took some alcoholics in my life to get me into a program of recovery that I needed, but that just reminds me that I'm going to try to tell you my story. And I've got to tell you a little bit about some of the other people in my life, but I'm, hopefully I'm going to keep this as much as possible about me. Tell you what I was like, what happened, what I'm like today. And I'll start at the beginning, and as Scott mentioned, my part of my beginning Start somewhere around here. My mom was born here in Fort Wayne and uh, lived here until she was 11. She moved to, to North Carolina, met my father when she was 16, I think. They got married, I think, when she was 19. She had me shortly thereafter. I think she was 20. And, uh, and just kept on having kids. I'm the oldest of five uh, kids. And I grew up in a home that was absolutely full of love. There was no abuse of any kind uh, in my, my uh, home growing up. As a lot of love, but there was also a lot of fear, and I never, I never really know how to put this into words. But it was, it was like love equaled fear. If you loved someone, you were afraid for them, all the time. You were afraid for their safety and their well-being, and that's kind of how you knew how much you loved them was how worried you were for them. And I remember that from an early age, thinking that 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 seemed unusual. I loved my parents deeply, but uh, I had a hard time with them growing up. I felt very smothered by my mom. Um, I felt like she was very overprotective, very fearful, and I rebelled against that from a very early age. Um, and it was a, a family joke early on that mom had this need to save the universe. She was going to go out and save everybody. So in addition to the five kids, I had a series of foster brothers coming in and out of the home. And um, I, there was always someone I didn't know staying in the, the spare bedroom because mom was taking care of them. There was always someone, a stranger at every holiday table that mom was ministering to in some fashion. And these are not bad things. These are good things. But being selfish and self-centered from a very early age, the way I saw that was all these strangers are getting unconditional love from my mom. And for some reason, I felt left out. I felt like I had to perform 
for her love, uh, performed to be approved by them, and I have no idea where I got that idea. It did not come from my parents. I made that up in my head. But uh, like I said, I didn't understand why mom just had to always be out there rescuing everyone and worrying about everyone. And I, I just, I guess I thought that's how she wants to be. I didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism. And, and coming into Al-Anon and learning a little bit about this family disease and how we're all affected has really allowed me to have a wonderful relationship with my mom today. The only real drinker I knew uh, was my mom's mom. Um, and so looking back, I think I have a little bit of an understanding why mom was the way that she was and some compassion for what it must have been like for her being the oldest child of a problem drinker. I try not to call my grandmother uh, an alcoholic because she does not call herself an alcoholic, but she, as far as I know, is still a daily drinker today and has been for as long as I've known her. Now, growing up, she was the fun grandma. I didn't have any, I didn't see any problem with it. She wasn't the grandma that wanted to make me sit quietly and cart me off to church. She was the grandma that would, you know, act inappropriately in public, and that's always fun when you're a kid. And, um, <laughs> She would give me the first sip of every beer I'd bring her from the fridge, and I'd sneak it, and that was exciting. You know, she was, she was fun, Granny, and uh, I, I didn't see any problem. You know, and she was always crazy. She didn't change when she opened that first beer. Everybody else in the room changed when she opened that first beer. But she was just, you know, she was the fun one. And uh, as I got a little bit older, I started to see uh, the negative impacts of her drinking and her behavior on my mom and on the family, and like I said, really got more of an understanding about why my mom was, and to some extent is, the way that she is because of this family disease of alcoholism. But again, didn't understand that growing up, and was just an absolutely miserable kid. Couldn't stand my parents, felt smothered, was always rebelling. I was raised in a, a very strict uh, fundamentalist church and school from a very early age, and uh, that did not work for me either. I was constantly getting in trouble at school, uh, I was socially very, very awkward. I didn't know how to talk to anyone. I just felt miserable in my own skin. Um, I was a perfectionist trying to earn that love. Uh, and so I did very well academically and actually skipped second grade. So I was always a year younger than everyone, and that made the social awkwardness a lot worse. And I just I, I've always felt disconnected from everyone and, and just absolutely miserable. I uh, ended up getting kicked out of that, that school, that church school, halfway through eighth grade for nothing in particular. They just got fed up and asked me to leave. I mean, there was no big incident. Just one day they called my parents and said, would you please take him home and never bring him back? And uh, <laughs> my, my parents would prefer that I don't say I was kicked out. They'd like me to say I was asked to leave because that's different somehow <laughs> to my parents. But So I was asked to leave halfway through eighth grade. And then I was homeschooled for a year and a half, and that was really miserable for everyone involved because by this time I really was not getting along with my parents and having them around me all the time was not pleasant for them or for me. And I was more isolated socially and um, really stunted, I think, in, in just getting to know how to interact with people. And then for grades 10, 11, and 12, they uh, sent me off to another very small religious school, private school, and... Uh, I was absolutely terrified. My earliest memories, some of my only earliest memories, are just a fear, constant fear of, of everything. And um, went off to that school, I guess in 10th grade, I was 14. And uh, I just, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what my answer was, but I found it. When I was 15 years old, I found my answer, the thing that was going to make me feel okay. And she came through that school 
I think halfway through the school year, and I, in my sheltered existence, very sheltered, I had never met anyone like this. Now, she was very easy to pick out of that crowd in this very small school where everyone looked the same and dressed the same and had the same haircut. She, she dressed crazy, and she had, I think her hair, hair was dyed pink and shaved in a V in the upside-down V in the back. And I know today that I could have picked her out blindfolded because I'm really good at finding these people. But she was really easy for me to find, and she was... She was nuts. She um, she was drunk all the time. I never. I just never met anybody like this. It was very exciting. She was drunk all the time. She, um, it was crazy. Um, I, she was an older woman. She was 17. I was 15. That was very exciting. <laughs> and um, again, I literally had no friends, no nothing. I so I, I found my solution. I don't know if she was looking for someone to save her. Probably not. But I know today that I was looking for someone to save. Mom had taught me that to be a good person, you go out in the world and you find sick people and you hold them down and help the hell out of them whether they want it or not. (laughs) And that's how you know that you're a good person. And that filled that hole in me that I didn't even know existed. And she really looked like she needed my help. She had been... Past, uh, she had gone from living with her mom to her dad to an uncle and aunt, and I think now she was living with some cousins. Nobody knew what to do with her, and I thought I did. I could fix this. And um, I was off to the races. We, we started dating, and, uh, and it was crazy. Like I said, she was drunk all the time. She lied about everything. Um, even when the truth would have been better, she just lied for no reason all the time. She was never where she said she was going to be. Um, it was exhilarating, and it was terrifying. And um, I turned 16, and I got my license, so it got a little safer because then I was driving us around. Uh, I, I have I have very specific memories of um, of holding her hair while she threw up, and how good that made me feel, because she was this sick person, and I'm helping her, and I'm such a good guy, I'm such a good boyfriend, I'm such a good man, at 16 years old, and it just very very sick, obviously, and um, it filled that hole. In me and and we uh, we we were together for uh, over two years. We graduated the same year. Um, and it was it was insanity. You know, and why it filled that hole was that, as miserable as it could be, I never had any time to think about me anymore. And before, all I had to do was think about me and what is wrong with me and why can't I relate to anyone and what. I never had time for that anymore. I always had someone else to obsess about and to clean up after and to lie for and to make excuses for and to bail out of trouble. That's what I needed. And I never had to think about me. And so we were, we went on and graduated the same year. She was 19, I was 17. She uh, went off to college in another state. And uh, I had done very well academically, always on the verge of getting kicked out for my behavior, but doing very well academically. And I turned down scholarship offers. I said, I, I hate school. I hate authority. I hate my parents. I'm not. I'm never going to college, and I'm moving out. And I did. So at 17. She went off to college, and I got to choose for the first time who I was going to live with. And who I chose were three guys. They were all 17 or 18 years old. Uh, two of them were well on their way towards probable alcoholism and some outside issues to go on top of that. And, uh, and then one of these weird normal people. He wasn't one of them, and he wasn't one of me. And someone rented us a house for 17-year-olds, eight, maybe 18, some of them, Anyway, that's still remarkable to me to this day. And it was, it was a nice place for like a week. I mean, it was not a horrible, <laughs> not an awful place to live, you know, for the first few days. 
And, uh, and we moved in and it was absolute insanity. As you can imagine, we were 17. We had our own house. There were hundreds of people coming in and out of that house constantly, all hours. And the normal guy, who I'm still friends with today, did what any normal person would do. He moved out. He lasted <laughs> maybe a month. He said, I can't live like this. I have to get up and go to work in the morning. I'm moving back in with my mom. And he did. I remember being so angry at him. How can you abandon me? with these irresponsible drunken idiots because yeah I have to get up and go to work in the morning too but but if I don't pay the bills who's going to if I don't do this and if I don't do that no one's going to take it's always on me and I just started living in this haze of self-righteous indignation about why is it always my job to take care of everything and everyone if they would just get their act together for a few days and give me a break my life would be so much better. Why am I always the one that has to talk to the cops when they show up every couple of weeks? Why do I have to patch the holes in the walls and, and pay the bills? And Why is it always on me? And it never once occurred to me that I was choosing to live there. I mean, I know that doesn't make any sense, but it literally never passed through my mind that I am making a choice to live here, that I have any other options. The only options were they have to change my life to get better. And that's how I lived the next several years of my life. And it was, it, was, it was nuts. It got worse. When the normal guy moved out, we had to have somebody to pay the rent. We had to have a fourth guy. We found this really old guy that was like 30. And uh, <laughs> he had lots of money. And uh, he was throwing money all over the place. And he needed a place to stay. So we thought, well, we'll invite him to move in. And he did. And uh, he was, you know, probably an alcoholic with some other uh, addictive qualities. But uh, the reason he had so much money is he was selling those outside issues. That's uh, how he how he had all that money. And then things got really crazy. I mean, I'm talking about um, like something out of a, a movie. I mean, I'm, I'm kicking people off the bathroom floor in the morning so I can take a shower and go to work. And it's just and I'm just angry and tired <laughs> and resentful all the time, and still have no concept that I can choose to do anything differently here. It's just why am why am I surrounded by all these drunken idiots. Why are they so attracted to me? <laughs> well, <laughs> they all have two things in common, right? Alcohol and me. <laughs> so maybe it's not that they're finding me, but I didn't figure that out for, for quite a while. And things are really crazy. Um, I had a good friend, um, one of the original guys that moved in there, and we got to be pretty good friends after my normal friend moved out, and uh, we drank together a lot. I mean, I, I always try to remember at this point in my story to say I was right there with them drinking with them, doing most of what they were doing with them. You know, this is a disease that, for the grace of God, I do not have. Um, I was looking for something to fill that hole in me. If alcohol had done for me what it did or does for the alcoholics I know in my life, I'd be dead. It just didn't do it. And so, you know, the point there is there before the grace of God. I can't have that self-righteous attitude of, well, if they just hadn't drunk, they wouldn't be alcoholic. You know, I was right there with them. And... Uh, I'm not an alcoholic, you know, there was for the grace of God. But um, we got to be pretty close, and we would hang out a lot and talk, and I got to know him. And what happened, he got hooked on this stuff that the other guy was selling. And I know this is about alcoholism, but I mention this because it's the first memory I have of really trying to control someone's intake of anything. With the girlfriend and her drinking, I never once tried to control that. It was just my job to clean up the mess afterwards. I never tried to stop her from drinking because I knew that wasn't happening. She was out of control. There was no point in trying. But with him, because his person, he was like he was a different person overnight. I've never seen anything like it. It was horrible. And I must have read about tough love somewhere, and I sat down with him one day and just had a real serious man-to-man with him and said, you know, I love you, man, but in our friendship means a lot, but if you're going to keep doing this, we just can't be friends anymore. And he looked at me and he said, okay, see ya. I mean, just no... <laughs> 
no, let me think about it. No, our, you know, our friendship means a lot. Just, all right, fine. And I was devastated. You know, how could he do this to me? It was always, how could they do this to me? How could he choose that over our friendship? I'm so grateful to know today that almost nothing in my life has anything to do with me, unless it's my behavior, my attitude, my reactions. None of it has anything to do with me. But back then, everything was being done to me. And how could he do this? And, you know, I, I, I was devastated. And I, I remember the first time my girlfriend was coming to visit from college. And I was really excited about this. You know, I, I, was, I was very proud of my crack house I was living in. I was, <laughs> I was tidying it up, getting ready for I was proud to have a house. I'm 17 years old. I have my own house. And I've been looking forward to this for weeks. And we're going to sit down and you know, catch up and see how school's going for her. And I just, I remember it. This is just a testament to the type of place I chose to live. She walked in the door. Someone handed her a substance. She did what she did every time, which was to ingest the substance without really checking to see what it was, just what she did. And she's off to the races. You know, my plans for the evening involve catching up and getting to seeing where, how my job's going, how school's going for her and everything. Her plans for the evening, you know, now involved sitting in the corner for the next eight or ten hours looking at her hands. That's what she's going to be doing tonight. And again, how could she do this to me? How could she? She knew I was looking forward to this. And this was not the first or the hundredth time something exactly like this had happened, and yet every time I thought it's going to be different. This time they won't behave the way they've behaved every single time. It'll be different this time. And then shocked, shocked and devastated every time they did the same thing. That's my insanity. I don't know why that was the last straw, but that was it. I couldn't take it anymore, and I had to end that relationship. Um, I have to be honest, and I'm not proud of this. I was scared of her. Her behavior was erratic, extremely erratic by this time. I never knew what she was going to do. So like a real man, I waited till she was back in Tennessee and called her and broke up with her. <laughs> now, like I said, I'm not proud of that, but that's just where I was at. I was doing the best I could and, and trying to take care of myself. And she did what I thought she was going to do. She had a roommate calling me saying she's hurting herself. You've got to... You've got to, you know, tell her that you've changed your mind. And I don't know how I was able to say no. I never said no to anyone. If I, if, if I was going to be a good guy or get your approval or anything, I would do, I did insane stuff. I just could not say no. And for some reason I was able to say no, I can't do this. And I think that was God doing for me long before I believed in that God. But, um, I couldn't do anymore. I said, no, I can't, I can't do it. And I moved out of that house shortly thereafter. In my late teens, early twenties, I moved around a lot. I was never in the phone book, obviously. And she would try to call me. She would, uh, she could never reach me, but she would call my parents at two o'clock in the morning and they would tell me the next day she's calling again and they'd give me a number and I never called her back. I mentioned all of that for a couple of reasons. She was the first alcoholic, I believe, alcoholic in my life that really deeply impacted me and I, and I hated her. I thought she was the worst person who ever lived when I came into Al-Anon because of the things she did to me. I thought she had ruined my view of love and of women, of relationships, and I absolutely hated her. But I found out, I was a few years into, into my program, I found out that she did end up killing herself when she was in her early 20s, I think early 20s, the details are sketchy. And the reason I mention that is that, first of all, I didn't hate her anymore. Because I had taken these steps, I was free of that resentment. But I was also free of any lingering guilt. If I had not been in recovery when I found that out, I would have done what I always did, which was somehow manage to make that about me. Oh, what maybe if I had taken a call? What could I have done? And I would not have seen the arrogance, the incredible ego in thinking that maybe I could have had control over a disease that she was powerless over. I would have immediately thought, what could I have done? And I would have felt some guilt and shame. And I was free of all of that. And I didn't hate her. I knew that she was sick. She was not a bad person. She had a horrible disease that made her do some pretty horrible things. But I didn't hate her. 
I was sorry for her that she never found recovery. And um, But what I found out when I ended that relationship, I was 18 by this point, is that I don't do well if I don't have someone to obsess about because now all I have to do is have to think about is me. I can't handle that. I haven't had to think about me since I was 15 years old. So here at 18, I can't handle this. And it was a matter of months before I you know, found my next volunteer hostage. She was crazy, and she needed a place to live. And alcohol, her older sister's alcoholism was had absolutely destroyed her home, and she couldn't live with her parents and her sisters anymore. And she was still in high school, and we moved in together, you know, because that's, that's just what I do, apparently. We found a place, and uh, I was 18. I think she was 17 still. And we were together the next four and a half years, uh, four and a half of what I hope are the worst years of my life, and hers, too. I hope for her, um, because it was it was absolute insanity. I don't know if she's an alcoholic. We both did a lot of drinking. We both did an enormous amount of damage to each other, um, because we were just two absolutely miserable people that didn't know how to do any better. And um, it wasn't all bad. Um, we traveled all over the country. I, I bought a VW van. I was trying to be a hippie. I, I had a VW and a be- I had a beard down to here and real long hair. And uh, we traveled over half the states and lived on the road for months at a time. And I found out that pe- people like me that need Al-Anon make really horrible hippies, or at least I did, <laughs> like really um, schedule-oriented, <laughs> uh, full of anxiety and fear all the time about everything. And... Um, <laughs> just like, it's my van. We're doing it my way. Um, just, I, was, I was the worst hippie in the history of hippies, I think. Um, but I, was, I had the look, and, you know, I really, that, that seeming ease and comfort of that lifestyle was so attractive to me, and I just, I never got anywhere close to it. I just couldn't do it. I know the people I was traveling with wondered, what is wrong with him? Because um, they, were, they were good at it. I just couldn't do it. Anyway, we had some good times, but mostly it was absolutely miserable. And I stayed for the same reason that I stayed in jobs that I hated, in horrible friendships and other in relationships. This idea that it's not going to get any better than this. This is the best I deserve. It's the best it's ever going to get. Um, I felt like she needed me. I really thought that she needed me and couldn't survive without me. And I desperately needed to be needed. Um, but mostly just the idea that the, the most horrible relationship was better than the abject terror of being by myself. I just could not sit alone in a room by myself and have any kind of peace. I had to have someone else there to distract me. And so we were going to get married. We had found a place in Colorado in our travels. Uh, we were back in Charlotte by now, but uh, we had found a place that we were going to move to. We were shopping for rings. And um, what happened was I met the woman who is my wife today. Annie and I were working together for my dad. I was managing my dad's natural food store. When you look the way I did, the only job you can get is managing your dad's natural food store. Um, And she was working there, and we just fell absolutely head over heels, like the kind of love neither of us ever imagined uh, was possible. And I had never met anybody like her. She was so beautiful inside and out, and she had a spirituality that really attracted me. She, uh, that was very different from the dogma I had grown up with. She just truly believed that God was everything and God was going to take care of everything. And I had never met anybody like this. And uh, a large part of what I fell in love with was the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She had been sober about four years at this time, at this point. Obviously, I love drunks, you know, and here's a sober one. So... Um, that was cool, you know. I I I'd, I'd never met anybody in AA, and um, but the awkward thing was I was getting married <laughs> to this other woman, and so I didn't know what to do. And um, I, I basically decided that if I'm even thinking about this, I probably don't need to run off and get married. Um, 
at 22 years old. So I did what was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and ended that relationship. And the reason it was so hard, the overwhelming guilt and shame of that came from the incredibly egocentric idea that she could not live without me. And that's embarrassing to say that out loud. It really is. I don't like admitting that I thought that way. But I really did not think she was going to be able to survive without me. And so ending that relationship was horrible. Um, the other awkward thing was we had a guy who lived in Boulder staying with us who we had promised to take back to Colorado when we went off to get married. Well, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to change. I'm, I, I'm a man of my word. So after ending this relationship and not knowing what was going to happen with Annie, my wife today, um, we piled all our belongings in a car, in our car. Um, the girlfriend ex-girlfriend, ex-fiance, and this friend got in the car, and I drove. I wouldn't let anybody else drive. <laughs> in absolute, if I'm going to do something painful, I'm going to do it in the most dangerous, unhealthy, insane way possible to get it over with. That's another pattern of mine. And I drove straight from Charlotte to Boulder, Colorado. I remember it took almost exactly 24 hours of nonstop. I don't know how they didn't like hit me over the head with something and take over the wheel, but I would not let anybody else drive straight through. I was out of my mind. <laughs> when I got there, emotionally, physically, every other way, and uh, dropped her off with some friends. I have no idea how long I was in Boulder. I, um, I gave her everything we owned, four and a half years of living in it, because that's how I deal with guilt. You take everything. I'm not going to take anything over the car. And took a Greyhound bus back to Charlotte. 44 hours this time. <laughs> Greyhound bus trip, which is delightful. I highly encourage you to give that a try if you've never done that. <laughs> Live on a Greyhound, Greyhound bus for 44 hours. Um, from uh, Colorado back to Charlotte, and Annie, my wife, picked me up at the station at like 3 o'clock in the morning, and, uh, and we moved in together, because that's what I do, apparently. And uh, we had not had a date yet. Uh, I'm serious. We had not been out on a date yet. And, I, and my wife likes me to remember to say, I did not cheat on my fiancé. Annie and I did not have any kind of physical relationship before I ended that relationship. I said, forget to say that sometimes. My wife always lets me know and I forget to say that because she was sober at the time. <laughs> she didn't want people thinking she was doing that in sobriety. But uh, So anyway, we moved in together and probably had our first date the next day. And, um, and it was wonderful. I mean, we were just head over heels, ooey-gooey kind of romantic love that, that we just never thought possible. And, and I loved to get to know about AA. You know, I... I um, I started going to open AA meetings with her and meeting all her sober friends, and that was so cool. And um, uh, I even read the first 164 pages of her book and, and thought, well, this is, yeah, this is incredible stuff for people that need it. And, uh, <laughs> and well, then I heard, her, I heard her give her AA talk and realized she really needs it because that <laughs> woman she's describing, the, the what she was like part, is not the woman I'm in love with today. So I loved AA. I loved her sobriety. I loved everything about it. Um, had no interest in any kind of program for me, but, you know, that, that's all great stuff. And we were just rocking along, and it was just wonderful. And um, what happened, I need to speed things up here a little bit, but we went to visit, of all people, that normal guy. <laughs> and his girlfriend were living in Wilmington, North Carolina. Annie and I went to meet them, stayed with them for a few days, hang out. And uh, Annie had uh, ensured me that she was uh, four years sober at this time. She didn't have a problem being around alcohol. And my friends aren't alcoholic. I'm not alcoholic. We were at a restaurant that was also a brewery. We were going to order a pitcher of beer for the three of us. Uh, they were bringing around little shot glasses, samples, to, so we could see what kind we wanted to order. I'm not here to tell my wife's story. 
Uh, and, and when she gives her talk, she explains what had happened in her sobriety to get her to this point. But she just reached over and grabbed one of those and swigged the, the shot glass of beer. And, uh, again, I don't want to tell too much of her story. She was wanting us to say, oh, it's about time. Join in. And then she would have ordered a real drink. She wasn't a beer drinker. She went, yeah, And she would have joined in. She did not get the response she was looking for. They knew she was sober. I knew she was sober. And the response she got was, what are you doing? I mean, just panic. And she set that down and played it off. That was just a joke. There was no alcohol in that little sip. And that was it. That's the most I've ever seen my wife drink. And everything went straight to hell <laughs> after that, which tells me that this disease is not all about the drinking. It's about the disease of alcoholism, and the drinking is but a symptom of this disease. What happened was I, didn't, I, I was a little nervous about that, thinking, what was that all about? But I didn't really think much about it because I was still up, up in the clouds. And uh, what happened was, and she's given me permission to tell this, she had a new sponsor. She was going back through the steps. She was doing a fifth step, and kind of on the way out the door, I said, oh, I had a sip of beer a few months ago to her sponsor, and her sponsor said, oh, well, you know, you're going to need to change your sobriety date. Well, that did not go over well. The woman that came home from that meeting with her sponsor was not the woman I fell in love with. I mean, that's the only way I know how to put it. The woman I fell in love with loved AA and loved her sponsor and loved sobriety and the program and the fellowship and everything about it. This woman was angry and resentful and full of rage and Everything changed. It was like living with a different person. And I'm not going to go into all the gory details because if you live with a dry drunk, you know what it's like. And if you haven't, I can't describe it. Um, so there's no point in taking her inventory here. It was rough. And remember, I was insane too. I was just as nuts. I did not know how to handle this different person that I was living with. She was just angry all the time. Her, her behavior changed. Her attitude changed. Everything changed. She was saying things like, we, alcoholics pick up white chips to mark their sobriety date down in our area. And she was saying things like, if I'm going to pick up a white chip, I'm going to go earn a white chip. And I was terrified. I really believed she was going to go. She was saying, I'm going to go get drunk. If I'm going to have to change my sobriety date, I'm going to go on a bender. And, and I believed her. And I, my obsession kicked in like it never had before. How am I going to stop this from happening? How am I going to keep an eye on her 24 hours a day to make sure that this doesn't happen? And, of course, I knew it was all my fault because everything is about me. It was my friends. If I hadn't taken her there, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, what's going to happen when I screw up again and she really does get drunk? I was absolutely insane. And uh, first thing I thought about in the morning, last thing before I went to sleep, I mean, just the obsession and the fear and the anger the growing anger about why is she acting like this would just, uh, my life was completely unmanageable. Not that it had been manageable before, but I was describing all this insanity to a friend of hers, NAA, who did a very loving thing and said, hey, you know about Al-Anon, right? And I think I probably said something like, yeah, I know about Al-Anon. Um, <laughs> my opinion of Al-Anon uh, came from the uninformed views of some members of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> And that's all I'll say about that. I did not have a high opinion of the program of Al-Anon, and it was just ignorance. I did not know what Al-Anon was. And I was absolutely sure at 23 years old that I did not need Al-Anon. The only thing I was more sure of was that I could not go on living and thinking and feeling the way that I was. And I had that gift of desperation that I think a lot of us have to have before I was willing to reach out for help. I had to be absolutely at the end of my rope, out of ideas. I, I, I knew I wanted to spend my life with this woman, but I literally could not imagine life with the alcoholic, and I couldn't imagine life without the alcoholic. And that was kind of my jumping-off point. Right? I just didn't know what to do. I could not survive either way. And so 
I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I know this isn't going to work, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. And so I went to the Queen City Monday Night Alamon Family Group. I still attend it almost every Monday in Charlotte, eight o'clock meeting, and I walked in there and looked around, and I was 23. Like I said, I still had that beard down to here, <laughs> had long hair down to here. I might have had that tied up, but uh, I looked around that room. And uh, I thought I, I was even more sure somehow that I didn't belong in Al-Anon. I, you know, it looked to be about 95% female, and that's not true. That's just what it looked like to me at the time. This is 1999, June or July. So anniversary is coming up sometime. I, I was in a haze. I don't have a date, but it was sometime in June or July of 99. I looked around there, 95% female in my mind. Um, the median age appeared to be about 102, as far as I could tell. <laughs> and. I do not mean to offend anyone when I say that. That was just my skewed perspective. Everybody looks old, I think, when you're 23. And I just thought, there is no way I can have anything in common with anybody in here. And I'm so grateful that uh, they just welcomed me with open arms. Nobody in there cared what I looked like. Nobody ever asked me if I was in the wrong room. <laughs> and I've heard that asked. And I'm, just, I'm not stating an opinion either way. I'm sharing my experience that nobody ever asked me if I was in the wrong room. I would have figured it out if I was in the wrong room. And I was looking for a reason to not come back to Al-Anon. And that might have been one. <laughs> and nobody would give me that reason. And I'm so grateful for that. They welcomed me with open arms and said, you're in the right place. And um, also, because of my ignorance about what Al-Anon was, I didn't think I qualified. I thought the woman next to me was going to say something like, uh, and then he ran over the dog, and then he crashed the car into the house, and then the house burnt down, and I passed. And I was going to have to say, hi, I'm Aaron, and my wife took a sip of beer. <laughs> and I'm really freaking out about it. And they were going to say, get out of here. You don't qualify to be here. You know? And I'm so grateful that I landed in a, a meeting in Al-Anon where, you know what? They weren't talking about the alcoholics. Not much. They were talking about themselves, their defects of character, their relationship with the God of their understanding, how they had found a way of life where they could be happy, joyous, and free no matter what was going on with the alcoholics and the others in their life. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful I landed in that kind of meeting because that's where I can relate. That's where I can relate. And I found out I do have something in common with these people. And so I kept coming back. Um, I did not talk to anyone. I was terrified of people, absolutely terrified. Um, I, I, I looked down. I couldn't look anybody in the eye. I, I, if you handed me something to read, my hand shook so bad I could hardly read it. Um, but I kept coming back. And things started to get a little better. I found out I'm not alone. I'm not the only person, especially not the only guy who feels this way about the woman that he loves. Started learning a little bit about this disease of alcoholism. And that was important because Annie did pick up that white chip. And we did end up getting married in the following January. And we had some good times early in our marriage. And we had some really, really, really rough times the first few years of our marriage. And like I said, I, I, I want to take her inventory here. But she was insane. But the point is, I was too. And I was told early on I can only do something about one of those sides, and I better find a way that I can be okay no matter what's going on. And so I, I just kept having to, to stop taking symptoms of a disease personally and see it for what it was and start focusing on me and my recovery. And, uh, and I kept coming back. After a couple of months, I don't know how long it was, I kind of hit a plateau where I just wasn't getting any better and things in my home weren't getting any better. And um, I just kept hearing about this program of recovery, and that the program is the steps we took are suggested as a program of recovery, and that if I was going to take these steps to get better, I was going to have to get a sponsor. And asking another man <laughs> to help me, in my fear and 
ego, I guess, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And probably the single best thing I've ever done for myself in my life was to reach out and ask another man to take me through these steps. Tom was always at this meeting at our clubhouse on Tuesday nights, and he always had a solution to share. We didn't have anything in common. He was older than my dad and a professional. I was not a professional. <laughs> he was not married to an alcoholic. I was. We had nothing in common, but he had something I wanted. And one day after that meeting, I just got up all my courage, and I went to him and said, Tom, will you be my sponsor? And he said a couple of things to me that I say to guys today when they ask me to help them, and I'm, I'm grateful he said this. He said, are you willing to do everything that I do to get what I've gotten from this program? And, of course, I had no idea what he was talking about, so I said yes. And... <laughs> But that was important because he can't help me if I'm not willing to do what he does. It doesn't mean his way is the right way. It just means it's the only way he knows how to do it. And if I'm not willing to do it, he can't help me. And that's, that, that's how it worked for me. And I'm grateful he asked me that. And he also asked, are you willing to pass this on the way it's given to you? And that's what I've tried to do. And, of course, I said, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I want what you got. Well, then he said, I'll be happy to take you through the steps, but i got to tell you, I'm also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I didn't know that. You know, in most of our meetings, we ask that members of other anonymous fellowships remain anonymous during our meetings so we can focus on Al-Anon, and I had no idea who was in AA. Of course, my first thought was there were like 40 people in that room, and I can still pick a drunk every time. <laughs> Just attracted to them. But at that point, it would have been really awkward to say, oh, well, never mind. So, um, so I said, I, I don't care, Tom. I, I want what you got. I'm willing to do what you do. And he said, I'll take you through the steps. The only way I know how. And we got started. I thought I had taken the first step. I knew intellectually that I could not stop my wife from drinking. I couldn't control anything else she was doing. So if she was going to drink, I knew I couldn't stop her. And I thought that meant that I knew I was powerless, admitted I was powerless over alcohol. And that was part of it. But he wanted me to take a little bit deeper look. What he had me do is he had me write down everything in my life that I was powerless over. And then next to each one of those things, he had me write down specifically how my life becomes unmanageable when I try to control those things. And that was really important for me for a couple of reasons. First of all, my life's not unmanageable because I'm powerless over alcohol. If that were true, I'm hopeless. I'm always going to be powerless over alcohol. My life only becomes unmanageable when I try to control the things I'm powerless over. And that's the connection that I needed to see, not only over alcohol, alcoholism, alcoholics, but everything. Everything that's not me I'm powerless over, and I've got to admit that, and I've also got to see very clearly how unmanageable my life becomes when I try to control those things before I'm going to be willing to take that next step. And so I'm grateful that he had me take that deep of a look at the unmanageability and the insanity because I had lived my whole life with this delusion that I can't be happy unless you're okay, if I love you, right? And, of course, being okay, in my mind, means you're doing what I think you ought to be doing, and you're not doing the things I don't think you should be doing, and you're basically acting the way I think you should be acting. And I can't be okay if you're not doing those things. And so because I love you and I obviously have your best interests at heart, if you're not applying my solution to your problem, the only reason, literally the only reason I can imagine for that is that I haven't explained it well enough yet. <laughs> I can't think of any other reason because I so obviously have your best interest at heart. And I know I'm not your God, but I do see the path that God has laid out for you. <laughs> and you're not on it. And as someone who loves you so dearly, it's my job to put you on that path, gently or not so gently, and to keep you on that path. And so I must not have explained it well enough, so I will explain over and over and over and over in slightly different words every time what it is I'm trying to get to you to explain why it's not okay for you to treat me that way or whatever it is with this, like I said, this insane delusion that one day you're going to get it. 
I'm going to find those magical right words and the scales will fall from your eyes and the light will shine down from above and you'll say, I see. I see now finally what you've been trying to say and it's so clear, it's so right. Um, you'll apologize for not seeing it earlier. That's always part of this fantasy. And that's the only word for it. It's a fantasy. You'll say, I'm so sorry I didn't see it earlier. And then you'll change and then I'll be okay. That was my whole life. And that's unmanageability to me. That's insanity. That's how I lived my whole life. And so I needed to see I'm powerless over everything that's not me. And if, if my happiness, my serenity, my peace of mind is in any way tied to anything that's outside of me, my life's unmanageable instantly. And it can still happen today. But the blessing is that today when that happens, I know what's happening. I know what's going on, and I can get back to that first step and remember and admit that I'm powerless and that my life has become unmanageable again. So seeing how miserably miserable of a job I was doing running the show, my only hope is that there's some higher power that can restore me to sanity. I did not have a problem with the idea that I was insane. I saw it very clearly in my first step. I knew I was insane. I knew I needed to be restored. I had some problems with the higher power. I came into this program with a lot of prejudice against the God of my upbringing. And, uh, you know, my prejudice took the form of contempt prior to investigation, and it took the form of preconceived notions. And Al-Anon gave me the opportunity to throw both of those away and start all over with this concept of a higher power. And my sponsor pointed out that it doesn't even say God yet here in the second, the second step. It just says that I have to come to believe that there's some power greater than me that could, not even would, could restore me to sanity. Well, that's my only hope. And I'm not quite arrogant enough, even though I did not believe that God would do anything for me. I'm not quite arrogant enough to say that whatever power is out there keeping the planet spinning couldn't restore me to sanity. And that's all it took for me. That's That, that was that little foothold so that I could move on to that third, third step. And now there's a little bit of a leap from this higher power to the care of God. And that was difficult for me, but I'm so grateful for the as we understood. And when I first started going to those open AA meetings, I noticed right off that the only part of their steps and ours that's, a, that's usually underlined or italicized, that's emphasized, is the as we understood him, twice. And I don't know why that is. I'm sure someone knows why that is. But I, what that meant to me was that must be very, very, very important because it's emphasized there. And I'm so grateful for that. God of my understanding was certainly not an option for me when I was growing up. That very concept was, you know, right out. <laughs> and so being told that I could choose my own conception of God is probably the single greatest blessing that I've gotten from this program because everything good in my life is a result of that relationship with the God of my understanding that I don't believe I would have found if it had not been for the program of Al-Anon. So with that understanding, I was able to make that decision. I didn't know, and sometimes I still don't know, how to turn my will and my life over. But I know how to make a decision. I know how to make a commitment to live my life as if I've made that decision. And that's all I had to do, was make a decision, a commitment, and then try to live like I had done that. And this, to me, is the anxiety and fear step. Every time I'm full of anxiety and fear, there is something over which I've decided that I need to be in control. And i got to find what that is and make a conscious decision to turn that person, that relationship, that outcome, whatever it is, over to the care of God. And when I'm able to do that, the serenity... You know, that I, that I experienced as a result of that is like nothing I've, I ever thought possible for me. So having made that decision, I was immediately uh, into taking an inventory. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to do an inventory, and there's no right, right way. So all I can share with you is my experience. Mine had four parts. The main part was a resentment list. And um, I loved the idea of writing down all the people I was resentful. I, I sponsor some guys today that just don't think they have any resentments, and I just can't <laughs> relate to that at all. I could name 20 people off the top of my head that had ruined my life. 
uh, from kindergarten on. And, uh, and I, I, could, I, I got to write them down and all the horrible things they'd done to me and how it affected me and see all the fear, 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 fear there. But then I had to turn the page and, and see that I had to set aside everything that was done to me and look at my part. And that, that, was, that was painful. That was unpleasant. Well, first I got to think about maybe forgiving them, that maybe they were as sick as I was and doing the best that they could, and maybe that by forgiving them I can be free. But then I have to take a look at my part in every one of those situations, every one of those relationships. And as painful as that was, that's where I got to see my defects of character in black and white. It was right there in that fourth column. I got to see what it is that's actually making my life unmanageable, and it's not alcoholics. It's not alcoholism. It's not these people, places, and things outside of me. It's my defects of character that block me from the sunlight of the Spirit. And I got to see them in, in my fourth step. and Well, really, in my fifth step. I couldn't really see them on my own. And with my sponsor's help, I was able to see that some of the things I thought defined me as a good person were actually these great defects of character. I mean, that overblown sense of responsibility for everyone, I thought that made me a great guy. It's not. It was selfish and self-centered. Everything I did to take care of you was to get something for me or was out of fear for the pain I was going to feel if something happened to you. And uh, my self-loathing, I hated myself. I hated everything about myself when I got to Al-Anon. It's not an exaggeration. And I thought somehow that was humility. I thought that's how humble people thought, that I'm no good at anything, I never will be, I can't do anything right. And that's not humility, obviously, and I needed to see that in my fifth step so that I could become ready to have God remove this stuff. And uh, immediately following that fifth step, my sponsor sent me home. I spent some time in prayer and meditation. I looked back over the first five steps. I saw that I had been as thorough as I was possible. I was ready, more ready then because I saw what those defects were doing to me. I was more ready then than ever before, probably since, to have God remove them. And so I got on my knees and I prayed a prayer. And I asked God to remove those defects of character. And I went to bed and nothing really happened. And I woke up the next day and, of course, all my defects were still there. And I don't know what, it's really silly, I don't know what I expected to happen. But I called my sponsor. I said, I, I, I don't really feel anything. I'm still, I still have this fear. I still have this resentment. And, you know, he probably said something very loving like, did you actually read the words in the step? Because it doesn't say anything about them going anywhere. It says that I am ready, and I humbly ask God to remove them. And part of that humbly to me means it's not going to be on my time. Like everything else, those defects are going to be removed on God's time, and it might not be the defect that's making me uncomfortable at the moment that gets removed next. Hopefully it will be the one that's keeping me from being of maximum service to God and to my fellows. But that readiness that it talks about in the sixth step, that is not some, just, well, I was ready. That's a daily action for me. And my defects of character do not get removed if I'm not taking the action of readiness. Our book, Paths to Recovery, says the sixth step is about, how does it phrase this? It's really awkward. It's the action of having God remove our defects of character. And that sounds like a really poorly worded sentence. But I like that because I can't remove them. But I have to take the action every day to show my readiness so that they can be removed. And God does not remove my resentment if I keep putting myself in situations I know make me resentful. It hasn't happened for me. If I keep doing things I know are going to make me resentful, resentment doesn't go anywhere. Uh, God does not remove my shame and guilt if I keep doing things I should feel guilty for. Um, God doesn't remove my self-centered fear if I refuse to do things that scare me, like this. And this is a perfect example. Um, I'm nervous right now. It's not nearly as bad as it used to be. When I was first asked to speak, I told you I couldn't even read something in a meeting. So when I was first asked to speak, it was I had been told that if I was able to do something, I needed to say yes. I was told I needed to learn how to say no to a lot of stuff in my life, but al requests were not on that list, and I needed to say yes if I was asked to do something. And I'm grateful that I was told that because I wouldn't be here right now 
If, if saying no had been an option, I would never would have gotten up behind a podium anywhere. But um, And then the first time I was asked to speak at something a little bit larger, I mean, and they give you months to obsess about that. Um, every day I would think about it over and over and over, and I would have a physical pain of fear, literally. It would hurt. I was so full of fear of getting up and doing this. And every time that happened, I would say, God, I know that this is self-centered fear. It's a defect of character. It's self-centered fear. I'm worried about, am I going to say the right things? Am I, you know, are they going to get something out of it? It's all self-centered fear. Please remove this defect so that I can do your will, which I believe is to share what this program has done for me. And I would pray that every time. I can tell you that when I got up behind that podium, I was just as terrified as I had been when they first asked me. The point is, the next time it was a little better. And that's how it works for me. I want it to work in the opposite. I want God to remove the defect first, and then I'll do anything God wants me to do. Sure, I'll do it. Just remove that defect. And it never works in that order. I've got to do what I believe God wants me to do despite how I feel. And in doing so, in taking the action of readiness, the God of my understanding is able to remove those defects of character. Resentment's another good example of that. I'll pray, God, I know it's your will that I treat this person with love and respect, but I can't because I hate them. For what, or I just can't stand them or whatever it is. And so you just go ahead and remove that defective character, that resentment, and then I'll go treat them with love and respect. And God, my understanding says it doesn't work that way. You go treat that person with love and respect that they deserve as a child of God. And in doing so, that defective character is removed. And I really wish it worked the other order, but uh, the other direction, but it never has for me. Anyway, I, uh, I'm going to wrap this up here. I had worked as thorough a fifth step as I could, but I still had some resentment. And I had not been fully freed of that. And, uh, and I knew that by making a list of the persons I had harmed and, and, and going out and making amends to them, that some of that guilt that I still carried was going to be relieved of me. I did not expect what happened to my resentments when I did that. And I made a list. And I became willing to make amends to them all before we started out on the ninth step. That's just my experience. And with my sponsor's help, I was able to go through them one at a time. And these, some of these people were people I would have crossed the street to not walk past. I did not want to go, you know, I did not want to go make amends to some of these people. And, uh, and yet I, I did. You know, that, that was a willingness that didn't come from me. I wanted what my sponsor had and what you had. I was willing to do these difficult things. And I'm grateful for that willingness because, like I said, it didn't come from me. But I went and I made these amends, and the guilt was relieved when I clean up my side of the street, when I fix what I broke and make it better than it was when I, when I broke it, when I change my behavior. You know, my sponsor told me I'm not... I'm not asking for forgiveness because I'm not asking them for anything. I'm acknowledging that what I did was not okay. And I'm making a conscious effort and, uh, and acknowledging that I'm trying to change. And I'm looking for a way to make it better if I can. And when I did that, the guilt was gone. But what I did not expect was that the resentment went with it. And I didn't understand why that works. I always thought for my resentment to leave, you have to apologize to me. For me to forgive you, you have to come beg my forgiveness, and then maybe I'll forgive you, and then I'll be free. But, of course, that means that I'm powerless, again, because you're probably not going to do that. So I didn't understand why, when I make amends, my guilt and my resentment leave. And it was a couple years later that I heard an AA talk on a CD where the guy described it exactly how it works for me. I can't stand feeling guilt. So if I feel guilty about something I've done for you, I need a resentment to remind me why it was okay what I did, what I did to you. I need it handy. I need it right there so that when that guilt hits me, I can say, but you did this. You started it. What you did was worse. If you hadn't done what you did, that horrible thing you did, I never would have done what I did. I need that, that resentment right there. When I clean up my side of the street, no matter what your reaction is, the guilt's gone, and therefore the resentment has no purpose, and I can go anywhere and do anything today. 
because I'm free. I never have to worry about running into someone from that church or that school or that I used to work with today. And that's an incredible freedom that I'm so grateful for. And I never ever have to carry around that guilt and resentment again if I'm continuing to take an inventory every day and, and promptly as possible make those amends. And some days I'm better at that than others. And, but I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to keep my side of the street clean uh, so I never have to carry that around again. But you know, part of that daily inventory for me is also looking at what's getting better. That's an important part of, of my inventory every day is to acknowledge what this program and the God of my understanding are doing in my life. And it may be just as simple as I handled that situation at work better than I would have a year ago. There's something I need to consciously acknowledge every day that I'm getting better because it is still possible for me on a really horrible day, really bad day. This hasn't happened in a while, but it's still possible for me to get to the point where I think this is not working. I am just as crazy as I was when I got here. This whole Al-Anon thing isn't working. This whole God thing isn't working. I'm broken. I am hopeless. And this isn't working. It's really hard for me to get down in that deep hole if every day I'm acknowledging that's not true that I am getting better, and that my worst day today really is better than the best day I had when I got to Al-Anon. So I need to do that inventory on both sides every day. I didn't know how to pray when I got here. Um, and uh, my sponsor pointed, me, pointed out you know, this, the incredible simplicity of praying only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. I can't mess that up. I can complicate just about anything. But that means I don't have to think about what to pray for. I don't have to figure out what's best for you so I can pray for it or what's best for me so I can pray for it. If I pray only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out, and then I do the footwork in the direction I feel led, then to me, by definition, I am doing God's will. It doesn't always work out the way I think it's supposed to. But I truly believe that if I'm doing that, that everything is happening for a reason. And even if it's the worst possible outcome I can imagine, I'm going to be okay. I've I've been given a program and a fellowship where I'm going to be okay no matter what comes. And that idea that I'm going to be okay really sums up, in a very simplistic way, that spiritual awakening that, that we're promised as the result of taking these steps. The idea that I'm going, I know that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to read something in just a minute that, that much more eloquently sums that up. But having been given this incredible spiritual awakening of knowing that I'm going to be okay no matter what today, I'm asked to do a couple simple things. Try to carry the message and to practice these principles in all my affairs. I, I tried to do what I'm asked to do uh, in Al-Anon. Uh, you mentioned Alateen. I was an Alateen sponsor for eight years, a huge part of my recovery. If anybody's thinking about doing that, I'll just throw a pitch out there too, and I don't usually do that, but incredible part of my recovery is carrying this message to younger people that have been so deeply impacted by this disease. I just try to do what I'm asked to do. I'm an active member of my home group. Um, I'm there early. I stay late. I've got a service position, and I don't do these things because I'm a great guy. I do these things because this is how I continue to have the spiritual awakening. And then to practice these principles in all affairs. You know, I, it, when I'm in a meeting, I'm on my best behavior. So that means for a few hours a week, I'm a spiritual giant. <laughs> but then I get out in traffic. You know, <laughs> practicing these principles in all my affairs is still very difficult for me today. But I like the idea, and I heard this early on, that one of the definitions of practicing means to learn through repetition. And that's what I'm doing. I'm learning this new behavior through just trying to do it. And I mess up all the time. But I'm trying to practice these principles in all my affairs, at work, in my marriage, in my crazy, crazy family. And I'm not doing that for anybody else's sake. I'm doing that for mine. Um, tell you a little bit, very briefly, my life today is better than anything I could have imagined. It's life. You know, there are good times, there are bad times. But um, Annie and I have a program-based marriage today. I admire her AA program, and I try to stay out of it. And, um, you know, we have our separate programs. And I, it is, I am not her sponsor. It is not my job 
to keep up with how many meetings she's going to or her prayer meditation or anything else. I try to stay out of that. But I do admire the program that, that my wife works today. And uh, the program, God and a program have to come first. And that's just our experience. We've tried it other orders, and it just doesn't work for us. It's got to be God, our programs, and then our marriage for it to work for us. And that means we might be on a date night and a sponsee calls, and they're in dire straits. That's where we're going to be. And again, it's not because we're great people. It's just we found out that other ways just don't work for us. And I'm grateful to be in a marriage. And, it, you know, it's a marriage. It has good days and bad days, too. But because we're both trying to practice these principles, even when we're not on the same path, we are trying to go in the same direction. And I'm really grateful to be in a marriage like that. I, uh, I went back to school a few years ago. The one thing I said I would never, ever do, and got a little two-year degree and got a real job, real career. Never thought that possible. What does that have to do with Alan on everything? I never, ever, ever, ever would have faced that terror of going back to school if it hadn't been for the program. Uh, and, and there's so many good things in my life I don't have time to tell you. Like I said earlier, everything good in my life today is a direct result of this program, the relationship with the God of my understanding that this program has given me. Everything negative is just a result of my will still today. So this uh, spiritual awakening that we're promised is the result of these steps. Uh, this sums it up better than anything I could say. I have lost my book, so I brought this. I left it on a car when I spoke outside of Charlotte a few months ago and uh, never turned up. And I can't find the original version of this book, and I want the original version. Um, some people call this the promises. Some people call this the gifts. I do not wish to engage in any controversy, so I call it page 269 and 270 out of the Al-Anon Conference-approved first edition from Survival to Recovery. That's what I call it. And this means a lot to me because when I heard this early on, I didn't think any of this was possible. And it really does sum up the spiritual awakening that I have had and am continuing to have as the result of these steps. If, starts with a big if, like some other promises. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. We will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves and will learn to accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, will yield hope to share with others. We will begin to feel and come to know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world, our choices will expand. With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We will laugh more. Fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Like I said, when I got here, I didn't think any of that was even remotely possible for me. And the fact that, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, every single one of these promises has come true in my life today is an incredible miracle for which I will be forever grateful. Thanks for letting me share.